Tonight's scripture reading is taken from the book of Amos, chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fountained animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The word of the Lord. If somehow you were able to pay a visit to the northern kingdom about the 8th century B.C., one of the things that you'd be amazed by was how much energy was being invested in worship. Religion was prospering, and as we look through the 8th century prophets, we find lots of clues to this. Uh, the businessmen are shutting down this, their businesses on the Sabbath, the shrines. And remember, we're in the northern kingdom. This is after the split between the south and the north. Uh, they can't worship at Jerusalem anymore, and so they're worshiping at Gilgal and Bethel. The shrines were, were packed with worshipers. They were participating in all the feasts and festivals. There were sacrifices being made um, frequently, daily, uh, at each shrine. And much of this worship was fueled by kind of nationalistic pride, on the surface, this looked like the glory days of Israel, almost like Solomon. Uh, they were at peace. The people living in the cities were prosperous. And so there was this connection between their worship and their prosperity. They felt that you know, God is blessing us because we are such a religious and worshipful people. So it must have been quite a shock when Amos showed up at Bethel, which is on a hill, uh, and it's just kind of a little, would have been a little shrine outside. It was the most popular shrine. It was where the king himself worshipped. It was where all the famous people worshipped. It was where all the most important priests worshipped. And so the shepherd from uh, the hills comes up, and in the middle of all of this worship activity, almost as if he broke into the worship service tonight, in the middle of all of that, he says, oh, excuse me, can I have the mic? Uh, I have a word from God. He hates your worship. That's Amos' message. He says, God says, I despise your feasts. Israel had three great feasts every year, Passovers, weeks, booths. The whole community would shut down and praise and offer sacrifices. It was a highlight of the holy calendar. God says, I despise them. Israel also, also gathered for solemn assemblies, days of repentance, and they would offer sacrifices, and the smoke would waft up and, and, and fill the skies. And, and, and God says, I don't take any delight in that. And the Hebrew literally means, I don't like the smell of that. He says, something smells funny, Israel, about your worship. And that introduces an idea that was kind of alien to a lot of other religions, that it's more than what we just do in a room like this, but that there can be some worship that pleases God and some worship that does not please God. 
And it goes all the way back to the first pages of the Bible, Cain and Abel. Where Cain uh, offers a sacrifice, Abel offers a sacrifice, and God, it says God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice and didn't like Cain's. And the book of Leviticus continues again and again. If you offer a sacrifice like this with a pure heart, it'll be an aroma pleasing to the Lord. And so that's kind of a difficult idea to get our hands around, our mind around, but God, in a sense, uh, is like a chef sniffing what's coming up from the kitchen, and some nights he comes into our community and he loves what he smells, and some nights he goes, God, that stinks. I think that's what he's saying. Well... He says, I, I, your burnt offers, offerings don't smell right to me. And then he goes on, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'm not going to accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I'm not going to look on them. The word accept uh, and look, there, there was a certain way that a sacrifice was to look. It was supposed to be without blemish. And so God has said, I don't like the way your, your worship smells, and I don't like the way your worship looks. I'm not even going to look at it. And then he says, take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps. I won't listen. So he doesn't like how it smells. He doesn't like how it looks, and he doesn't like how it sounds. So this is about as much of a thumbs down uh, as you could give for worship. And he brings these words to Israel right in the place where everybody's worshiping which may be why he was invited to never come back. That's Amos chapter 7. Amaziah, who was on the priest's payroll, uh, tells Amos, O seer, go, get out of here, flee, and prophesy in Judah, but never again in Bethel, for it's the king's sanctuary and it's a temple of the kingdom. This was not, of course, Amos's first word about the worship of, of Israel. He, he offers this rather sarcastic call to worship in chapter 4. Come to Bethel and Gilgal and sin all you want. Offer sacrifices the next morning. Bring a tenth of your crops on the third day. Bring offerings to show me how thankful you are. Gladly bring more offerings that I have demanded. You really love to do this. I, the Lord God, have spoken. Well, what is wrong with Israel's worship? What doesn't God like about it? Was it the drummer? Was he off that week? Was it the sound system? Was it that they sang too many hymns or not enough choruses? No. We get a clue of what was wrong In verse 24, one of the most famous verses of the Old Testament because it's the verse Martin Luther King used in the I Have a Dream speech. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The worshipers were not doing justice and this compromised their worship. In, In New Covenant language, we might say they... They thought they were loving God, but they weren't loving their neighbor, and God hated it. These were covenant people. They were supposed to live 
in a protective interwoven tapestry of commitment to one another. Their most vulnerable members were supposed to be cared for. Their neighbors were supposed to be protected. No one was supposed to get rich at the expense of everyone else, and they'd forgotten the covenant. And so Amos brings words like this, For three transgressions and for four I'll not revoke the punishment, says the Lord, because you sell the righteous for silver and the needy for sandals. And, and this, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate, and maybe the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And, and this, hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end and buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Our worship should overflow in justice. And when it does not, our worship is compromised. So what does it mean for justice to flow like water through our lives? Well, I think we could boil that this down to a simple definition if we could bring that. I think I might have skipped a slide already. We'll come to that next week, I think. Um, the next one, maybe. If we're really going to boil it down... Doing justice is caring for the vulnerable members of your community. Now, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about that, this, reading this, listening to teaching on it. And the Hebrew idea of justice, I'm convinced, is ultimately about relationship. The Hebrew idea of justice is about relationship. The idea is you've been brought into relationship with God. He's brought you in mercy to himself. He's shown you grace. And now live graciously with those who are around you, especially those who are vulnerable and in need. That's what justice means. And I I think we kind of get out of whack with this because as soon as you quote Martin Luther King, you think, you know, okay, i got to be committed to something that will one day get me a national holiday. You know, we're not, we're not saying that. We're not necessarily talking about these epic, epic things. We're saying start by paying attention to the places in your life where someone vulnerable is suffering. Start there. Now, that could lead to epic things. When you start learning to care for people and you begin to understand the struggles they face and the systemic sinful things in our society that make it hard for them, that can lead you to advocacy and political engagement and lobbying and whatever else and protests and all those kind of things. But it starts with relationships. But here's the challenge. I was watching something on the news the other night, and they interviewed a a lovely uh, woman. She was about 63, African-American, had a Harvard MBA, worked for the World Bank, Uh, very, very powerful, successful woman. At one point, was making $200,000 a year in a consulting business. The recession hit, and she lost everything. And then when the economy got back, she was in her late 50s, and she found that nobody really wanted to hire a woman, a black woman in their late 50s anymore. And now she told the reporter that she's uh, behind on her mortgage, can't afford health insurance, and might lose it all. And, and the reporter just stared at her and said, ma'am, you don't, you don't look like that. You look like an upperly mobile Washingtonian. And she said, I fake it really well. 
And see, all around us, there are people who are vulnerable and who are suffering that have learned to fake it very well. So what this invitation to justice does is, is, is really kind of scary and radical because it's inviting us to pay attention. It's inviting us to enter into relationship with our neighbor in a way that we know them well enough to know where they're suffering. And that takes a ton of time. It just takes so much time. You can't be on your phone texting while you do it. There's not an app for it. And if you do that long enough, you're going to find a next-door neighbor. If you're a young mom and you're thinking, I just don't have any more energy for justice, you're not going to have to go look for it. You're going to find a neighbor who's vulnerable. If you're a businessman or a a woman in politics or whatever it is, if you start to pay attention, you'll begin to discern the needs around you and the Spirit will begin to prompt you to do something about it. That's what it means to do justice. Now, there is one other thing that I think happens with this. If you really start paying attention to God, and ultimately that's why worship and justice go together, right? Because as we connect to God's heart, and we fall in love with Him, and we worship Him, that overflows in compassion for our neighbor. Love of God, love of neighbor, that's really all we're talking about. If you start to do that, and you really start to catch God's heart, He may say, you need to meet some new people. Not always. Many times he won't. But one of the ironies of life in our community is that our community has been built up systemically so that you can live your whole life and avoid great need. And I know it's true in any neighborhood, the most wealthy neighborhood in Knoxville, there's great need. I get that. Wealthy people I know are some of the saddest people I know. They just have more money to cover up with. But still, I think you have to be open in this whole doing justice thing that there may come a point where the Holy Spirit says, Drive down Magnolia tonight, just once. Resubscribe to the new Sentinel. I know you canceled it. Resubscribe and start reading the stuff in the back. You know the little column where it says young male killed? That that column, read that. Maybe read a book. Maybe go on a prayer walk. See what happens. So I want to hold this intention. On the one hand, I think doing justice is very much a lifestyle. It, 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 I think that's the idea of flowing. This just flows naturally. 
But sometimes the blinders of our community have put us in a position where we're not exposed to need, and God may lead us to make some new friends. Now, uh, as I was thinking about this this morning, I I wanted to play around with this idea as we close, that the opposite is true as well. Here's what I mean by this. Worship and justice have to go together. Worship connects us to the loving heart of God. It should overflow in love for our neighbor, particularly our vulnerable neighbor. But the opposite's true, too. You cannot work for justice in the world without being a passionate worshiper. See, it goes both ways. And if if I were Amos, and I think of, you know, our church, I'd be as concerned about that as the the first part. Um, In fact, if Amos were prophesying today, he might say something like this. And, well, just listen. Maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) God might say, I hate, I despise all your do-gooding. I take no delight in your endless hours of serving the poor. Even though you weep for the immigrant and the homeless man, I'm not that impressed. Your Facebook posts, they look like idols of anger to me. You will never sustain this, O my people, for you have forgotten to worship me. But let worship roll down like waters and praise like an ever-flowing stream. So I think there's really two dangers that we can fall into here. We can be so focused on worship and loving God and knowing God and serving God that we forget about our neighbor. And we can be so focused on our neighbor that we don't worship very much. John 15, 5, you can do nothing apart from me. I'm not saying that all the good work in the world people do doesn't count. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all, but we're, I'm talking to people of God here tonight, okay? Just, just people who have signed up for this deal. And if you sign up for this deal, whatever you do in the world has to flow out of your love relationship with God or God doesn't like it. Somebody was interviewing Mother Teresa, and uh, he asked her, how do you spend hours in the gutters of India without getting burned out? And she said, I worship two hours every morning. And I'm so filled up that that sustains me through the rest of the day. I don't know about you, but the times like we had tonight with the worship team leading us, those are some of the best times of, of my life, and the more I move towards doing justice, whatever that looks like, 
lately it just seems like that's kind of everywhere I turn around. I find myself just craving worship. And, tw- and twice over the holidays, once at OBC and New Year's Eve, there were like 700 people that showed up for what they call it a watch night service. When we worshiped, well, I left before it was over. <laughs> it just kept going and going. Saturday night, I was with the, some of the fellows said, would you talk to us a little bit about you know, the baptism of spirit and spiritual gifts? And you know, I went up there at 6 o'clock, and they said, well, let's worship a little bit. They put on the, the worship stuff, and at 10 o'clock, I said, I'm old, i got to go to bed. And they were just going strong. And I drove home, and I thought, God, I want to do this with my own family. The 20 minutes we taste tonight is great, but it's just not enough to satisfy my soul. And I want to thank those of you that help us with worship. You give such a sacrifice. We don't realize it, but you spend hours to serve us. So thank you. But I, I, I need more. <laughs> I need more. Well, I don't have a conclusion. Let's break.